0: And as you're opening to Luke 4, I'm going to tell you something that you already know. And that I already know, and that's that the world we live in is very broken. We don't need anyone to tell us that our world is plagued with trouble. That our lives are broken and our lives are plagued with trouble. I just wrote down a short list. Fighting. Corruption. Cancer. Cancer. Crime, injustice, ignorance. And we all know that the list could go on and on and on and on. It doesn't matter, ultimately, who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who's sitting on the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter, even if we have wonderful, great, scientific breakthroughs and discovery and advances in medicine... Doesn't matter ultimately that we have education reforms, all of these things that we welcome and at times work very diligently toward and we want. Ultimately, you and I know, if we're Christians, that the world is going to stay broke and that there isn't going to be ultimate resolution. And there isn't going to be ultimate deliverance no matter how educated we are. And no matter how good our president is. And no matter what kind of mood the UN is in. We know as Christians, it's going to stay broke. And when this part's fixed, this part's going to be broke. And on and on and on it goes. Merry Christmas. It's depressing, and we're not even, I'm speaking in generalities, we could start talking about our own lives, and you get this part fixed, and then this part's broke, and on and on and on it goes. At the end of the day, we have to realize that ultimate deliverance will not come apart from an ultimate deliverer. Ultimate deliverance will not come apart from an ultimate deliverer. The good news is, we're studying the good news according to Luke, Luke chapter 4, today, and we are learning that Jesus ends up being the ultimate deliverer. So pardon the cliche, but I don't care what your problem is, ultimately, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> And I like to joke and say that time and time again when someone says, I have a question. I say, I already know the answer. The answer is Jesus. And it gets old. I know. But when we're speaking in big picture terms and ultimate senses, it's more than a cliche. Ultimate deliverance has to be from an ultimate deliverer, and His name is Jesus. And we're seeing that in the Gospel account. And we're going to see that in Luke chapter 4 today. This morning we're going to look at verses 31 to the end of the chapter, and unmistakably you'll be able to identify four demonstrations of Jesus' authority. Four concrete demonstrations of Jesus' authority that that show Him to be the deliverer. That qualify him to be that ultimate deliverer. And so we'll see authority and authority and authority and authority. And it's all viewing toward, looking toward, giving us hope. Because he's going to bring ultimate deliverance. It has to come through him. And so we're going to look at number one, the authority of Jesus' word. The authority of Jesus' word. And that the context is going to be uh, where we were last time. If you weren't with us last time or if you need to remember, Jesus right now in his earthly ministry is in the northern region of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem is down south. A lot happens in Jerusalem because the temple is there. But he's away from the temple area, away from Jerusalem. He's up in the north, not down in the south. If I just misspoke, I don't, I'm not even sure. But he's up north in the Galilee region, around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 or 14 miles by about 7 miles. It's actually a lake, but even to this day they call it a sea because of its size and because it gets very, very active. Um, but the Galilee region is an a, a important region because of the water source, because of the agriculture, because of the fishing. If you're not in Jerusalem and you're a Jew... You want to be in Galilee. It's the nice place. It's the place where you get away from things. And Jesus is busy doing ministry in the Galilean region. And he's going to be on the Sabbath in a synagogue... It's an interesting synagogue because this is one of the synagogues you can actually go to today. There's, there's a first century synagogue there. Um, if you go there, you'll, you'll see the ancient ruins and the pillars and everything. And, and that's not actually a first century synagogue. But down below, you'll see, see a, a lower level where they built the synagogue on top of a synagogue. And you'll see the black lower crust. And that's first century. Uh, it's an important synagogue then. It's an important one today, archaeologically. It's right by the sea. Jesus, we're going to see, is there doing ministry, and we're going to see the authority of his word on display at that synagogue. Look at verse 31 with me, if you would, where it says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Verse 32 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority becomes super important, and and I promise you, by way of preview, that's going to be the emphasis. Authority, 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 and here it's just teaching. Now, he was not the first one to ever teach in a synagogue. That's what they did every Saturday, so they're not astonished at the fact that someone's teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. That's ordinary. I don't think they're astonished because he has authority, because he wasn't the first person to ever speak in the imperative, he wasn't the first person to ever raise his voice and say, thus saith the Lord. But there's something unique. There's something different about this. It wasn't that he was the first good speaker. There's always been good speakers. It wasn't that he read the scriptures and then said bad things about it. The pattern would be you'd read the scripture and you'd explain the scripture. Jesus wasn't slighting the Old Testament scripture. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 5, he says it's so important that that not only the letters are important of the law, even the markings of the letters are important, Matthew 5.18. So, so he has the uttermost respect for what he's read, but there's something about his authority that's making the people astonished. Maybe a hint, and you can jot down the cross-reference if you'd like. Something similar happened, not the exact same occasion, but something simpler, similar happened that's recorded in Matthew 7. And in Matthew 7, uh, verse 28 and 29, we, we hear him teaching and he speaks as one having authority. And then listen to these words in verse 29 of Matthew 7. Not as their scribes. That's a good clue for us to understand our passage. They're astonished at his teaching because he speaks as one having authority, like in Matthew 7, which makes him different than their Scribes, let's use a synonym there. His speaking, His teaching is authoritative, not like the authorities. The scribes. The scribes are the authorities. They're, 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 they're the ones that know what they're talking about. And here Jesus speaks as one having authority, not like the authorities. Not like the scribes. There's something extraordinary. There's something different about the way he's teaching. Uh, One other insight would be from the fact that he's not quoting anybody, and that was common to quote other people. He's not quoting Rabbi Hillel after he reads, he's not quoting Rabbi Shammai or some other rabbi. The difference really ends up being he has inherent authority. He doesn't have to quote anybody else. He doesn't have to quote a greater authority, so-called. He doesn't have to quote a lesser authority. He doesn't have to quote a peer. He just says this is the meaning. And the people are astonished. It's different. Different. You know, it would be one thing for those of you who, like me, are excited that the Hobbit's coming out it be one thing, December 14th, to a theater near you. Can't wait, I'm taking my whole family, we're going to go. It'd be one thing for us to gather and hear world-renowned Tolkien scholar, Michael Drought, lecture on the finer points of The Hobbit, which no one in my family would care about, but I might go. It'd be one thing to hear a world-renowned scholar lecture on the writings of Tolkien it'd be something altogether different if we could push rewind and go to Oxford and sit at the feet of Tolkien to have him explain Tolkien. Totally different. Not a perfect illustration, but it's at least scratching at the idea. Jesus, the author of the Scripture, is explaining the Scripture and there's nothing like that Jesus is not only telling the truth he John 14:6 is the truth it's totally different it's radically different Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says about Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the creator. He's the one that spoke and things were. Can you imagine hearing him talk about his revelation? Not only that, John chapter 5 tells us that the scriptures, even the Old Testament scriptures, ultimately are about Jesus anyway. And so here he is explaining the Old Testament scriptures which have to do with him, and he wrote them. You know, it would have been something. Some of you can remember the first time you heard a true and good expository sermon. I remember those days when I, I was first exposed. I can't remember the first time I ever heard it. Some of you can remember. But I was first exposed to true, good, expository preaching. And maybe some of you can especially, especially, you can specially relate. I got that wrong first service, too. I can't say especially. I can't say especially, so I say specially. Anyway. I'm not even from the South. Um. (laughs) Especially (laughs) if you weren't raised in a Bible teaching home, Bible teaching church. You know, I was used to the guy reading the scripture and then doing poetry or talking about some kind of story or something that somehow was sort of related. And then to hear someone read the scripture and explain the scripture in context in a way uh, that that it really made sense. And it was like it was was coming alive in a way I'd never heard before. And, And I was thrilled and excited and got a taste for the preaching of God's word. Not preaching about the word, but the preaching of the word. Well, imagine that and realize that it's a bazillion times better. Because you, don't, and you not only have the best expositor alive, you have the author of the text doing the expositing. Extraordinary. Authority in himself. That's why there's authority in his word. He's the one. He's qualified to, 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 to tell about deliverance. He's qualified to tell the truth. He's qualified to be the one who says things like, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because he's it. It's exciting. He's different from everyone they've ever heard, even the most qualified people they've ever heard. He's different. Now, realize, just previewing a little bit, so as it's super exciting to people who are hearing him, we're going to know what that's going to mean for those who aren't telling the truth using the scriptures. Offering pseudo-deliverance. It's going to be bad. He's going to be the biggest threat on the planet. It's no wonder they kill him. Let's move on. Let's go to number two. A second demonstration of Jesus' authority is his authority over demons. In verse 33 it says, and in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit who had the spirit of an unclean demon. If You just pause for a moment and and let's just pretend like we're in church for a minute because we are. And we read that and we're like, okay, why did you even stop? I know about demons. I've read the Bible before and this is church and so we believe in demons. Well, let's just also pretend like we're in the 21st century in America for a minute because we are. (laughs) And maybe let's pretend like we're not in church. We read this and go, "What?" I mean, because essentially we're 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 rationalists. We're not supernaturalists. I mean, we might be spiritists because we like spiritual things because we can't solve everything through rationalism. But typically, we don't go, "Oh yeah, demons." We go, "Demons, movies, fiction, bad dreams." And I don't want to do a whole demonology here, but just to do just a quick reminder. According to the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, demons are as real as you and me. Okay, real created beings, angelic beings. Satan is an angel, a fallen angel. Jesus treats demons and angels as real as human beings are. He's a supernaturalist as well as a realist, therefore, created beings who've opposed God, their creator, who've led in uh, in, uh, not only the opposition of God, but to the good things for God's creation. They're against God, in other words, what I'm trying to say, and they're against His people, and they have been. The Bible teaches that they face a sure defeat, Revelation chapter 20. The Bible teaches many things about demons. I just want to say one more thing about them and then we'll move on. This isn't a teaching, it's an observation. When you read through the Old Testament, you see demons at times. But you don't see demons all the time. It doesn't mean they don't exist all the time, but you see uh, surges, if you will, of demonic activity. What you don't see is this uniform demonic activity always, always the same. And then in the New Testament, similar. But where you see the big surge, the big high point, the big emphasis of demonic demonic activity, and this is undeniable by way of observation, is during the earthly ministry of Jesus. I don't know exactly why, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to make a pretty good guess. God's solution for the broken world ends up being in the person and work of Jesus. They've opposed God from the beginning and the people of God from the beginning. And so we see heightened, emphasized demonic activity during Jesus' earthly ministry. Like we don't see today. But it would make sense. not saying demons aren't around today. I'm not saying demons aren't active today. But there's a reason why it's so pronounced here. They oppose Jesus because Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Well, enough of that for now. Let's go ahead and keep moving in verse 33. Yes, there's an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Verse 34, what have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Two things at least to notice in those verses. Have you come to destroy us? Apparently demons know that Jesus has the power to destroy them. Other, another thing to observe is. They know who Jesus really is. They speak the truth about who Jesus is. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Which is a title for Messiah. Which is a, a title for King Deliverer, Savior. Hmm. Remember when, and in, in maybe you do or you don't, but some of you, do you remember in John chapter 6 where Jesus has a bunch of the uh, uh, of his followers leave him because of his hard teachings? And Jesus says to Peter, do you want to go too? Peter says, no, no, no. And then Peter says, John chapter 6 verse 69 We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Exact same title. The demons know who Jesus is. As sure as the apostles know who Jesus is, the disciples know who Jesus is, the demons know who He is. He's the Messiah. He's the Deliverer. He's the ultimate deliverance. Demons know it. Just as an aside, I always like to point out when I'm in a passage like this and remind you that demons have good theology. James chapter 2 makes it clear that they have very good theology. Better theology than some human beings do. They know who Jesus is. They're speaking truthfully about who Jesus is. Then it says in verse 35, let's keep going. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Then drop down to verse 41, because it's going to be a similar sort of thing. So let's cover it now. Verse 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ, that is the Messiah. You see, it's the same position, just using a different title for the same. Now, Jesus is silencing the demons maybe because it's not time yet for him to be announced as Messiah, you know, like Jesus does with his disciples at times. Maybe even more likely, Jesus doesn't want bad PR. You know what it's like when you know someone who doesn't have integrity that's speaking truthfully about something and you kind of are cringing on the inside or maybe on the outside and you're thinking, you know what, this isn't good because people know who you are. They know who that person is. And even though you're speaking truthfully about this, they might conclude the wrong things because you've got a bad reputation. Well, demons follow their master, Satan, who is called the father of lies. They have a reputation for lying. And even though they're speaking the truth here, Jesus goes, I don't need your bad PR. Verse 36 tells us, They were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? See, notice there's a repetition. They were amazed earlier with his teaching that his word has authority. Now his word has a different kind of authority because his word is what silences supernatural, powerful, demonic beings. What is this word? For with authority, here we see that again in verse 36, with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Again, Jesus is setting himself apart from prophets. He's setting himself apart even from experts. He's setting himself apart as the authoritative one. He has power even over unclean spirits. By His Word, He has that kind of power. That's because He's more than a mere human being, though He is a human being. Hebrews chapter 1, again, verse 3, would have us to know that He's the Creator. By His Word. He's the very One. Psalm 36, 33, verse 6 says, By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He's the powerful one. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And he's showing himself to be that very one who can speak and it is so. By Jesus' word in Mark chapter 4. He will calm the sea. With a word. Power over the elements. In Romans chapter 10 verse 17. We learned that the word of Christ. Is what does the supernatural Saving of people, the recreating of people, people who are spiritually dead. He makes them alive. Listen to what Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He recreates through his word because he created through his word. And that word is so powerful that it's nothing but a thang, (laughs) we might say, for him to say, demon, shut up. I'm not saying it's not important, but given the fact that who he is, it's not a big deal. He's the one that speaks things into existence. He's the one that does the seemingly impossible by his word. The connection should be unmistakable. Verse 37 then says, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. It's a big deal to them. It should be a big deal to us. And my friends, it should be a big deal to us, not just because we're impressed. We should be impressed. You know why Jesus is impressive? It should be a big deal in light of the big panorama of things. Think holistically. Think big picture Bible. Think big picture world, perspective. Think big picture all the problems that we face in our life and in our world as you suffer and as I suffer. And there's injustice and there's wrong and there's all of these things that plague our world. Think big picture. Jesus has the power over demons. And we're going to see He has power over Satan who is a demon. Why is that so important to us? Why is that absolutely crucial and critical for us? Well, if we step back and we think big picture... And we think biblically, we go back to the very early chapters of Genesis, right? And we hear Satan say, Has God said? And we see the tempter, and we see him used in orchestrating the rebellion against God and tempting Adam and Eve, leading to the fall, leading to death. Leading to calamity, leading to the mess that we're in, and you can start to see why it's so important for Jesus to show up on the scene as the one who defeats the devil, and he defeats his minions, his demons, and that's the only way we're going to have restoration in this world. John chapter eight, Jesus is—excuse uh, me, John chapter eight—we hear Jesus talking about Satan, and he's a murderer. John chapter 8, he's a liar, the father of lies. He's got to be defeated. John chapter 8, verse 44. four. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Satan as a demon is our adversary. So think big picture. Why is Jesus silencing demons and casting out demons? And why are we going to see this throughout his ministry? Well, he needs to have dominion over if he's going to be the king If he's going to be the deliverer, among other things, he's got to stop Satan. Go back to Genesis again. You go back to the earliest chapters of Genesis. We also have that that pre-gospel announcement. Sometimes people call it uh, things like that. Genesis 3.15, the promise that is there, that hope that is there even early on, that ultimately Satan would be crushed we're starting to see at least a foretaste, at least a preview of Jesus crushing Satan because he's crushing demons. And then we start to see the bigger picture of things and we know what happens on the cross and then we move into the rest of our New Testament and we hear about how he indeed has not only cast out this one demon, but many demons and not only that, He's ultimately dealt a death blow to the devil himself. And so we hear words like these words. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's talking about believers. Romans chapter 16 verse 20. That day is coming when he'll be crushed under our feet. Why? Because we're united to Christ. And he is the king over even the demonic world. And he dealt them that death blow On Calvary's cross and through His resurrecting power. That's why we love Romans chapter 8 as well. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is nobody. And on that list is certainly included demonic beings. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers... What's important when we read our gospel accounts, read the gospel accounts, we're starting to see where it's going to go. It's more than incidental that this is happening. I do want you to turn to Revelation chapter 12 through a fascinating passage when it comes to Luke chapter 4 as a helpful cross reference. What I'm trying to get you to do is what I think is important to do, and that is even though we're in Luke chapter 4, the cross hasn't happened, it's to, to realize that we do know the cross does happen. Well, we do know that He came to save His people from their sins. We we do know that it's part of the plan. And what ends up happening is we see these things as, as previews of the ultimate. Just as His resurrection ends up being a preview of our resurrection and the ultimate for us, we see where He's headed. We see that He's qualified to be the one to bring ultimate deliverance. Revelation 12.10 is a fascinating verse when it comes to the very same kind of verbiage and, and wording that we're seeing in our passage. And, and we see things coming to fruition. They come into their, to their fullness. Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ "...have come for the accuser of our brothers." That would be another title for Satan. Satan, who's the leader of these demons, who is a demon, "...has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God." A couple of interesting things to notice where he says, "...now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God..." if you just drop down visually to chapter four, you're not that, never mind. If you're taking notes, in chapter 4 of our Luke text, don't leave this passage yet. In chapter 4 of our Luke text, in verse 43, Jesus is tying his Messiahship to his kingdom, and he's preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Here's what I want you to notice. His kingdom is tied to Satan's defeat. Okay, in Revelation chapter 12, you have the actuality, you have the experience of this kingdom where it's not something we're waiting for, it's actually here, okay? And the association is with his kingdom, the kingdom of God, with Christ coming and Satan being defeated, ultimately. And I'm not trying to force things or play tricks or anything like that. In Luke 4, you've got kingdom of God in 43. Jesus preaching as the king. And his ministry on earth has a lot to do with defeating demonic forces. What we need to see is, it's a taste. It's a foretaste. It's a preview Okay It shows that he's qualified, it shows that he's the king. His kingdom has not yet come. Revelation 12 has it in its actuality, in its experience. We're waiting for that, but you've got to know that he's already proven that he's the one. He proved it when he was on earth. kingdom tied to demonic defeat, power over the demons. And he'll deal a final death blow to Satan. You say, what does this have to do with anything? What does it have to do with my life? It has everything to do with your life because it has everything to do with your problems. Just know that Jesus is going to show himself to be good on his promises. We know that's the case. Not because he was a good theoretician or he was good at making empty promises. When he was here on earth, he demonstrated and showed for historical accounts to be made that he indeed is the one who has power over the demonic. And that gives us a glimpse, gives us a peek, if you will, a sure look at his coming kingdom that we will be a part of by faith in him. It's exciting. And it helps us to realize it's so much more than Jesus just showing off his powers. It's kingdom looking. Freedom giving. Resolution bringing. He has authority over demons. That qualifies him to be the king and to bring in the kingdom of God where perfect righteousness will be ruling and reigning let's move on to the next demonstration of jesus authority and that's his authority over disease it's his authority over disease verse 38 says and he rose and left the synagogue and entered simon's house now simon's mother-in-law this is this is peter now simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf, 39 says, and he stood over her and he rebuked the demon of mother-in-law's. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> Can't believe I did that. Um, I tried to make it a joke earlier, first hour, and it totally failed. This time it worked, but I think I might be in more trouble. Um, Alright, scratch that. Let's go back. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf, 39, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And here's where it gets really important and exciting. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. We're going to come back to that in just a second, but I have to confess to you that when I read verse 39, I have a I have a weird feeling. I almost have a feeling of embarrassment. I'm jaded enough because of exposure to pop culture and Hollywood and media and I've seen enough televangelists and hucksters. I read this and I kind of feel ashamed. I'm I'm kind of glad I'm not in public reading this and saying, oh, I believe that's true. I'm just going to be honest with you. I feel kind of weird reading that. But here's the thing, I think that kind of weird feeling is okay, because the reality is, for anybody to do this other than Jesus is wrong. And so it's no wonder I feel weird, because quite frankly, it's no wonder Hollywood makes fun of televangelists who claim to do this. They should make fun of them. Jesus does this because he's Jesus. He's the only one who can do this. He, he's, he's meant to stand out and be unique and different and totally different because He and He alone is the Messiah Savior who's qualified, who has the authority to do such things. And so now I'm back to not feeling weird at all. We should make fun of those other guys. They should feel weird. But when it comes to Jesus... We don't have to feel weird because He's unique and different. He's the Savior who has authority over such things. Then verse 40 says, Now when the sun was setting, all those, let's put some emphasis there, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him and He laid His hands on every one of them, let's put some emphasis there, and healed them. Please notice a couple of really important things. Notice that what happens is immediate That's different. So so much so that the mother-in-law is healed and instantly she's back to her maternal ways. She's taking care of things. She's serving people. This is not some kind of huckster thing where you know what, maybe it'll get better later if you have enough faith. Now there are times when Jesus challenges people about their faith, but this isn't one of them. He just heals her and there's instantaneous healing. That sets him apart as different from what you might see on TBN. And then, notice where I tried to emphasize a couple times in verse 40, it's all those who were sick, every one of them, he heals them all. And that's very different too. It's very different than what you might see on television. There's a reason why the Benny Hinn camera guy's aren't outside of the Anaheim Stadium after the supposed healing crusade. Because if the cameras were rolling out there, I've seen them with my own eyes, they would be filming thousands, thousands of people leaving in their wheelchairs and in their sicknesses. Which is not what Jesus did. Jesus healed everybody who was around. He's different from all of those wannabes. He's totally different than they are. He has authority over disease. And we'll talk about the relevance of that to us as we suffer and get sick and have our ailments as well. But let's at least see that he is different. He's supposed to be different. He really stands out. Now let me ask you. Why does Jesus do this? Well, because he's nice. Good job. He is nice. He loves people. He doesn't like to see them suffer. That's true. Or you could say, to show his power good answer. You're right to show us power. But once again, I want you to step back a couple steps. Think big picture. Jesus does this because he's the Savior. Jesus does this because he's the ultimate deliverer. Jesus does this because sin And rebellion against God brought the consequence. God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely what? You will surely die. And associated with death, as we continue to move through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, associated with death are the things that surround death, the trappings of death, which would include suffering, certainly physical suffering plaguing this world that we all face, some to greater degrees than others, but ultimately in the end, all of us to the same degree. It's because of sin and rebellion. And so we have a Savior that's giving us a preview, (laughs) a foretaste, a sampling of what is to come for those who trust in Him and His resurrection where there is new restored life. No more suffering, no more illness, and He's giving us a glimpse. He's showing us that He really is the Savior King. He really is the Deliverer King. He really is the one who's going to be able to restore health, not just like He does for Peter's mother-in-law and for others, but for ultimate time and for eternity. He's going to do that, and He's demonstrating that He can do that here. Just for the sake of time, you could jot down passages that move us beyond his earthly ministry and move us on the other side and apply these things to people like you and like me, like 1 Corinthians 15, that talk about his resurrection. And there it's not just a preview, it's a reality. And if you're trusting in Christ, you're guaranteed resurrection. Translation, meaning you're guaranteed restored health, eternally restored health, health because of his resurrection that's first corinthians 15 verses 55 57 oh death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ verses 20 to 22 but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits notice the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep nice way of saying dead For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that would be Christ. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's giving the preview. He's showing that he's qualified. It's anticipating. You want to use the big fancy word? It's the trajectory. We see where the trajectory is aimed, where it's pointed, where it's headed. It's headed toward ultimate, lasting health, resurrection, health, life. If you'd like to turn to Revelation chapter 21, uh, I want to read that passage and and talk about this on the other side of things. So what we are end up doing, we're looking at Jesus' earthly ministry and we're seeing this kind of preview reality because he still has to go to the cross and he still has to be raised, but we're seeing a foretaste which is promised way, 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 we could reach all the way back to Genesis and then we see it actualized, fulfilled, become actual reality for us way, way, way on the other side, Revelation chapter 21. Exciting stuff. 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. See, this is the undoing of what the first Adam led us into, if you will. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Notice these things that are associated with death and suffering. There will be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Anymore, for the former things have passed away. I told you Jesus is the answer. (laughs) He is so the answer. First Adam, tragedy. Last Adam, ultimate lasting deliverance. Rest. No more suffering. No more death. None of those things. And by Jesus showing here in his earthly ministry that he can heal instantly, powerfully like no one else can, he's given us a taste. He's going to raise the dead too, by the way. But even where Jesus raises the dead in his earthly ministry, they eventually die. Because it's not the ultimate of Revelation chapter 21. But it is a foretaste. It is to show that he can do it. It's not because Jesus wants all Christians to be healthy all the time. It's not why he heals in his earthly ministry. If he wanted Christian, all Christians to be healthy all the time, what a failure. And Jesus is no failure. His apostles weren't even healthy all the time wasn't his intent his intent was to show that he actually is the qualified one his intent was to do something so much better than making Christians healthy all the time so much better because he's intending to make us healthy for a time and for time and eternity something far greater but he's got to do more for that to happen, right? For the ultimate restoration to happen, he's got to be resurrected himself. He's got to do more. Let's keep going in verse 41, and then we'll go to the last point. In verse 41 of Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> oh, we already looked at that, didn't we? That's the, the more demons coming out. Uh, we already covered that earlier when we looked at the demons. So let's, let's now move... <clears throat> Let's now move to number four, the final demonstration of Jesus' authority, showing he's the one, he's qualified to be the ultimate deliverer. And that would be, let's call it authority in mission. His authority in mission. Verse 42 says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and and came to him and and would have have kept him from leaving them. you say, oh, what a bunch of dummies, don't they know anything? I, you know, I would totally be one of those guys. Jesus healed everybody who came to him. You know what you're going to do? You're going to say this is like our our own little fountain of youth. This is awesome. We just keep Jesus here. You're going be texting all your friends. You would be tweeting about this. You know, He'd just come to us. He's here, and you say, why would why would they want to do that? Because he healed everybody. Well, they're not stupid. They're, they're healthy today, but what about tomorrow? What about their friends? I mean, th- this is exciting. This is like nothing we've ever seen before. Plenty have come to, and claim to do great things, but he really is the one. L- let's keep him here. Just, just keep coming. You don't blame them. I wouldn't blame them for doing that. It makes total sense why they would do that. But notice his authority in mission, verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, Please notice, maybe it would be effective for us to say what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I must heal people in other towns as well. Though he does. He doesn't say, I must free people of demonic oppression in other towns as well. Though he does. Instead, what does he say? Instead, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well. It's so much bigger than demonic, uh, free, uh, freedom from demonic oppression. It's so much bigger than having people get cured from their ills temporarily only to die again. What I must do, priority number one, and those other things are good because I do them. They point toward where I'm going, but what I must do is so much more important than that. And that's why I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Which is going to have to do with more than the temporal, temporary. It's going to have to do with the eternal, lasting, living forever, right? It's so much bigger than the foretaste. Sometimes we want the foretaste, and that's all we want, and that's just because we don't know what we really want. It's not, we don't really know what we need. Instead, I've got to go, and I've got to preach, and I've got to preach about the kingdom. Oh, yes, it has to do with health. Oh, yes, it has to do with putting down Satan and his minions. But it has to do with more than that. He uses the gospel word, which has to do with the fullness of his work, culminating in his cross work even. Right? I've got to do that. Think about the solution that this is going to bring. That atoning sacrifice will bring reconciliation to God, which is our biggest issue, forgiveness of sins. Not only that, that will end up bringing if that's the vertical peace that we need so badly, that vertical peace will bring the horizontal peace, and now we love to sing this time of year peace on Earth, right? Yeah, it's going to be peace on Earth. Not only that, it's going to bring with this kingdom ultimately coming, it's going to bring perfect justice, no more injustice, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears like we learned about it in the book of Revelation. I got to preach that he says, you think this is what's best, but actually there's something more important. The gospel of the kingdom. You got to love Christ. You've got to love Christ. You've got to love His earthly ministry, especially when you see things from the big picture of things. The, the undoing of the mess that we're in. The restoration that was promised even in those early chapters. First Adam, he's the last Adam, right? Satan tempting, being the father of lies, being a murderer, being the deceiver, put down, crushed ultimately through his victory on the cross, but we're seeing the preview of it. He's the one. He is the ultimate deliverer for us. It's good news. I don't want to take away from this. But by secondary application, I think there's at least something for us to learn church-wide. Because we could easily be committed first and foremost to good things and not be committed first and foremost to the thing. And we can learn from Jesus. We're not Jesus. Let's not have a, a, a Messiah complex. But we are the people of God, part of the church of God that Jesus is building. And so I think we should probably follow his example. There's a place And a time for saying no to good things. Because sometimes the good thing keeps us from the main thing. And Jesus does that very thing. I'm going to make a qualified or an educated guess here. When Jesus left the region and walked away. Some people might have said. That's not loving. That's not kind." They might have even quoted Bible verses at him. But he's about preaching the gospel first and foremost. Because that's what brings ultimate happiness, if you will. Ultimate restoration. Ultimate everything intended. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he says, I determined, I made up my mind, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He knew that that wasn't what everybody was looking for. He knew that if he took a vote, it might not be where the masses would want him to be. But that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. I think he's being like his Lord Jesus. There's something bigger here, and it has to do with redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, ultimate healing, ultimate justice. Let's remember that as a church. Let's do other good things. Let's do, by God's grace and with His help, though imperfectly on our part, the things that the Bible would call a church to do, but to not forget and lose sight of the obligation we have the calling we have to proclaim to proclaim the gospel to people because at the end of the day that's what's going to matter because that's what will last forever pray with me if you would father thank you for our lord jesus christ our savior he is extraordinary he is the good one who brings good news to us Please remind uh, the men and the women and the boys and girls who are here this morning, uh, including myself, of his trustworthiness. Remind us that the kingdoms of this world are temporary. Remind us uh, today even that, that they're broken. And try as though we may to make life in this world as comfortable as we can and as we try to make things just and as we try to seek fairness in this world and we try to seek good for others, please remind us that ultimately uh, the answer is not in what we do, that ultimately the answer is in Christ Jesus and help us to be good ambassadors to represent the King and the Savior well starting with speaking to our own selves about where our hope is and then speaking to others about where true hope can be found, that Jesus really is the answer. In his name we pray, amen.